I promise I had nothing to do with the um, projector not working. <laughs> nothing to do with that, so. <clears throat> if you're tuning in, the, the reason I said that was because we were talking about putting TVs up, so. But I did not sabotage a projector in order to say, look, we need, <laughs> we need TVs. Uh, in just a few minutes, we're going to be in the book of 2 Peter, uh, and we're going to be reading chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 4 through 10a, so the first part of verse 10. There are times that people will hear about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they will say something along these lines. If that's the way God is then I'm not going to believe in him. I've always found that saying interesting. You can't hear me? Oh. I have, uh, that's rare, because usually people can hear me, no problem. <laughs> I found that saying, saying a little bit interesting uh, uh, when, when people say that they're not going to believe in God, um, mainly because that logic doesn't make any sense. Not believing in God does not make God go away. And it does not make him not exist. People try to dismiss that God would ever be a God of judgment by saying, well, I believe in a God of love. God would never judge anyone except maybe the absolute worst sinners. Some people go even further and they say, I don't believe in the Old Testament God of judgment. I believe in Jesus because Jesus never condemned anyone. You see, the problem with that is Jesus spoke more often and more graphically about hell than anyone else in the Bible. In fact, he used the account of Sodom's destruction to warn about the final judgment when he returns. From Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible reveals a God who will bring judgment on sinners, but who shows mercy and deliverance to those who repent of their sins and trust in him. Peter is writing this second letter, Second Peter, to help churches stand against some of the false teachers who were infiltrating the ranks of the church. These teachers not only promoted false doctrine, but also ungodly living. And in chapter 2, verse 10, Peter alludes to them when he says, they indulge in the lust of defiling passions and they despise the authority of the master who bought them. Peter tells us they exploited the people in the church for sensuality and for greed. And at the root of their false teaching was a denial of the second coming of Jesus Christ and his judgment of the world. We see this in chapter 3, verses 3 through 13. They even encourage people towards sexual freedom, according to verse 19. And they assured that a loving God would never judge anyone. In this text, what Peter is driving home is that even though God's judgment may be delayed, it is absolutely certain. He uses three historical examples of judgment. 
And he uses two examples of God's deliverance of the righteous from judgment, both to warn us and to encourage us and anyone else that would happen to read 2 Peter. The warning is that God in his righteousness judges all the ungodly people. Always. There is no one who will escape the judgment of God that is ungodly. The encouragement is God will deliver the godly from judgment. Therefore, we must have the courage to stand firm in following God in an ungodly world in which we live. It's as if Peter lived today. So if I was going to give you one sentence to sum up this entire message, it would be this. Since God in his righteousness will judge all the ungodly and will in his mercy save the godly, we should stand firm in following him and resisting all false teaching. There we go. Sermon's done. We can leave. No, I'm just kidding. Some of you are like, I wish. No. Uh, so, so with that said, let's read 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 to 8. I'd ask that if you are willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's word as we read 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 a. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, which slept with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. I pray that you would speak it into our hearts and into our lives today. May every person that hears this message from your word be changed some way, somehow, some form. Speak to us, Lord. Speak because your saints are listening. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This text is like one giant if-then statement. Look at uh, the, the verse uh, where it starts off, uh, verse 4. For if... That if could be rendered since. Since. Because there is no doubt in what Peter is saying. What Peter is doing is building towards his conclusion, which is in verse 9. The idea here is that since God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, and since God did not spare the ancient world in the flood, but he preserved Noah, and since God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but he rescued Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly and to keep the godly under, or the ungodly under punishment for the day of judgment. 
these examples of judgment are Peter giving a warning to not follow false teachers. The examples of rescue are Peter encouraging the people to follow the Lord even when many around us live as if there is no judgment. First, notice this. God in his righteousness judges all the ungodly. God in his righteousness judges all the ungodly. We will notice three areas that Peter proves that God in his righteousness judges all the ungodly. He argues that history proves it, and he gives us vivid examples to warn us that God will indeed judge the wicked. Therefore, we should think about these examples, and we should apply these examples to our lives. The first example that he gives us is this. This is proven in his judgment of fallen angels. So Peter says he's judged fallen angels. It's proven in his judgment of fallen angels. Peter tells us, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to change of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. God created the angels as these righteous spirit beings. But if we know a little about our Bible, then we know that Satan was a leader among the angels and he rebelled. And many of the angels uh, that are now called demons joined in Satan's rebellion. To be honest, the Bible doesn't tell us when that exactly happened. We don't, we don't know when and how it happened, although it had to happen before Satan tempted Eve. Many understand uh, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14 to refer to Satan's fall, who desired to make himself like God. There are also many who interpret Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 through 19 to describe Satan's original a perfect and subsequent fall due to his own pride. Many great scholars understand our text this morning to be referring to a cryptic incident from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, where we read about the, the sons of God, which is interpreted as demons, taking wives among the daughters of men, which resulted in a dominant race called Nephilim. This was a very dominant uh, interpretation of Genesis chapter 6 among the first century Jews. It is also further detailed in a first century book, uh, first century BC book called the Book of Enoch. Some of the evidence that is pointed to, uh, pointed out for this interpretation are uh, that the story was common in Jewish literature and uh, three examples, the angels, the flood, and the destruction of Sodom all come out of Genesis and the incident in Genesis chapter 6 which led up to the flood would explain why demons are now confined to the pits of darkness. There's a variation of that interpretation that says these demons did not actually cohabit with women, but instead they possessed powerful men who cohabited with these women. Now you might be thinking, well, who cares about all that? Well, apparently many people care about all that. If you don't believe me, just go search Nephilim into Google and see what comes up. You have page after page after page after page of results because people are like, oh, because they heard about this dominant race that once uh, uh, ruled, the, ruled the land and this sort of thing. And so people do care about it. No doubt some of those views on Google will be heretical. Anyway, I could, I, I, I could support the second view and I actually held that view for a short time. The, the first view is, seems way ridiculous to me that that these demons slept with women and had offspring. That, that seems um, 
absurd. And it's not supported biblically at any place in Scripture. It's only supported by Jewish myths. Mainly, I see no way that physiologically demons who are non-human spirit beings could procreate uh, children. While demons and angels sometimes take on human bodies, there is no evidence that they can produce offspring. I mean, what kind of genetic makeup uh, would, would these children have? We, we don't know. What about their souls? Would they have a soul? These are the questions I ask. Would they have a soul? What, what about their children? Would the children have a soul? I just think about demons uh, mating with humans. Uh, uh, that view creates all kinds of problems that we don't need to deal with. It creates more problems than it solves. There is a third view, one that I prefer. And that's this, the sons of God is a reference to the line of Seth from Genesis chapter five. They intermarried with godless women, leading to the human race's degrading sinfulness, which then led to the flood, which we all know about. This means that 2 Peter chapter two, verse four, is about angels, general fall, and that God relegated some of the fallen angels to be confined in pits of darkness and they are being held there for their final judgment when they will be cast into the lake of fire. The Greek word here that's translated as hell is a verb, and it means to cast into Tartarus. It is actually the only time that that word occurs in the Bible. It is a word that comes from Greek mythology, and Peter's readers would have been very familiar with what Peter was saying. It referred to a lower place in Hades, and this is where um, the especially wicked were sent and everybody knew it. So when, when Peter's readers are reading this, they knew exactly what Peter was saying. Peter's not approving of Greek mythology. He's simply saying, God's judged these fallen angels by casting them into this really awful place until the final day of judgment. That's what Peter's telling them. God, God judged these angels and they have now been cast into a terrible, terrible place until the final day of judgment. And this proves that God's judgment will come. Secondly, Peter gives us another example, right? He says fallen angels is proof of God's judgment. Here's another example. This is proven in his judgment of the world through the flood. He says, God judged the world through the flood. Verse five, Peter tells us, if he did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, who was a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. We'll look at the preservation of Noah in just a minute, but Peter's point here is that God brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. The flood destroyed all people, every living creature, except those that were on the ark. That account is in the Bible to warn us that there is a day of judgment that will one day come. This was a day of judgment on the whole world, but there is a day that is coming. None of the ungodly will ever escape in that day. Peter refers to the flood again in chapter three, verse six, and in verse 10. He will make the comparison that just as the ancient world was destroyed by water, even so the present world will be destroyed by fire, is what Peter tells us. I don't know if you've ever gone uh, to that ark encounter but it is, it is fascinating to me. I'd recommend going. I'd recommend going and checking it out. I think a lot of time when it comes to the flood, uh, people get hung up on, on all these different issues like, like geological questions or, 
or question like, how could, how could Noah possibly get all those animals on the ark? And we miss the point entirely. The main point of the flood is not how did Noah get all the animals onto the ark. The main point of the flood is, 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 is not like, well, how did it happen? We don't really know, and scientists can't figure it out. That's not the main point of the flood. The main point of the flood is that God poured out his judgment on the earth in a horrific flood. That's the main point. Everything and everyone that was not on the ark perished. It died. That's the point. The Bible uses this account of the flood as a warning to everyone since that time that there is a far worse future judgment. This judgment was terrible, but there is a judgment coming that is far worse when all the ungodly who are not on board with Jesus Christ will perish, not temporarily, but they will perish forever. That's the point. Oh, dear Christian, that we would grasp this. That we would understand that our friends, our family members, our co-workers, everybody who does not know Jesus are set to suffer forever. Not part-time, not partial, forever. Everybody lives forever. It's just where you're going to spend it. And that should motivate you and I to do something. As we hold the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that judgment is coming forever. It should motivate us to tell our loved ones, to tell our friends, to tell our, our family members, to tell those that we even walk by on the street, judgment is coming. And it's forever. Third, Peter says this, that God, God proves this. He proves his judgment in his judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is proven in his judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 6. That by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. This is from Genesis chapter 29, when, when God rained fire and brimstone on the cities that were located near the southern end of the Dead Sea. Prior to God's judgment, it was this fertile area, but after God's judgment, it was an uninhabited wasteland. Genesis chapter 19 is a chapter about the corruption of Sodom. The men wanted to homosexually rape the two angels that came to Sodom to rescue Lot and his family. And even when the angels struck them blind, they didn't repent. Lot's future sons-in-law thought that Lot was just joking around with them when he warned them to flee the impending judgment. In the book of Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 49, we're informed that the people of Sodom are arrogant and had abundant food and ease. But what they do? They refuse to help the poor. Peter states that God made the people of Sodom an example to those who would live ungodly lives. In other words, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah was not a one-time only oddity. It serves as a warning 
in Scripture of the judgment that is to come. Peter adds something that, that the parallel to this passage uh, in Jude 5 through 7 omits, and that is God's preservation of Noah and Lot. Peter includes these accounts to show that not only does God judge the wicked, and history proves it, God will judge the wicked in the future. He already has judged the wicked in the past. History proves that God judges the wicked. But history also proves that God in his mercy saves the God. Point number two. God in his mercy saves the godly. Now, godly people don't earn their salvation because of their godliness. Salvation is always by grace through faith, apart from any good works. But those who are genuinely saved live in obedience to God. Their godliness results from their salvation, and it culminates in their eternal deliverance from God's judgment. These accounts of temporal judgment and rescue are a picture of a final, eternal judgment and deliverance. They reveal to us that God will indeed punish the wicked and he will indeed spare the righteous. Before we look at these three examples, I want to make something clear that many people um, misunderstand, and that's this. When God sends temporary judgment, many godly people suffer along with the wicked. Often, well-meaning Christians will try to declare that something can't be God's judgment because Christians suffer. So that, that can't be that God was judging anything because other Christians, because there was Christians that suffered. And I have found this often um, when natural disasters occur, right? People can't imagine that God would allow a natural disaster and that Christians would suffer in that natural disaster. And that's just bad theology, folks. It just is. We so often misunderstand uh, God's temporal judgments. When a tornado came through Washington, people declared, this isn't from God. I heard that all the time. You can imagine some of the looks I would get when I would say, then where did it come from? Someone else control the weather? Is God sovereign or not? Guess what? God's people suffered along with ungodly people. In 2004, when the tsunami hit South and Southeast Asia, God's people suffered along with ungodly people. When the 2010 earthquake struck Haiti, God's people suffered along with ungodly people. Little children suffered with hardened sinners. Wars, famines, earthquakes, tornadoes, pandemics, hurricanes. We could go on and on. God uses temporal judgments as a warning for those who still live that there is an eternal judgment that is coming. And we entirely miss the point when we stand around, oh, God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't sin that. God would, God would never have any part of that then your God is small. God's deliverance of Noah and Lot from those temporal judgments is to give hope that he will one day rescue you from eternal judgment if you repent. 
That does not mean that godly people are exempt from temporal judgments because we're not. We can read Luke 21, 16 through 19. We know that we will suffer temporal judgment. There are three examples of judgment, but we only have two examples of deliverance. But we can learn from an omission as well. And so that's what I want to do. Start off with the first thing is an omission. God teaches us through the fallen angels that salvation is owed to no one. God teaches us through the fallen angels that salvation is owed to no one. God delivered Noah and his family and Lot and his two daughters. No deliverance for the angels. They don't have any possibility of salvation. There's some people that get mad and they get, they get frustrated. And they even rail against the biblical doctrine of God's sovereign election. And they will say things like this. Well, if, if God can save everyone but chooses only to save some, then, then God is immoral and unloving. Let me just be as blunt as I can. That kind of talk is blasphemous. It also completely misunderstands the enormity of human sin and guilt. God doesn't owe salvation to anyone. We're all sinners. Every last person is a sinner against the holy God. He doesn't owe salvation to you or to me or to any fallen angels. In many ways, angels are more glorious and powerful than humanity. But they sin, and God was perfectly just to judge them without providing any means of salvation. God is not unjust if he chooses some people for eternal life and passes over other people, leaving them under judgment for their many sins to display his wrath and justice. But there is good news for sinful people. And that is the accounts of Noah and Lot show us that God has provided salvation for sinners unlike the fallen <coughs> angels. Humanity has hope for all who trust in Jesus Christ and turn from their sins and obey God. All who trust in Christ and turn from their sins and obey God will be saved. But we also see that God saved Noah through the flood as a display of his mercy to the godly. We read that God preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. This is the only place where we are told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. But we shouldn't be surprised by this. He spent 100 years building an ark on dry land. <clears throat> Can you imagine? This guy has gone nuts. Tour guides bringing the people out. Hey, everybody, let's go look at the crazy man Noah. He's building this gigantic boat miles away from any water. We read that the earth was wicked at the time and it was violent. Certainly Noah's actions in building this ark and his words warned them to repent of their sins before it was too late. Judgment was coming. In Genesis, we read that Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his time. Noah walked with God, and even at that, he did not earn God's salvation. His righteousness didn't earn God's favor. We read that 
Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah was a sinner. As we learn in the aftermath of the flood, he gets drunk and he lay exposed in his tent. However, his life's overall pattern was one in which he was obedient to God, even when it is hard to do. His account teaches us that if we trust the salvation that God has provided in Jesus Christ and turn from our sin, we will be delivered by his mercy from the judgment that is to come. We have one last example. God saved Lot from destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as his display of his mercy to the God. Verses 7 and 8 tell us, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. We don't want to miss Peter's point here. Three times he repeats that Lot was righteous, contrasting him with the central conduct and lawless deeds of the unprincipled men of Sodom. Their, their wickedness paralleled the conduct of the sensual and lawless false teachers. But how is it that Peter calls Lot righteous? The story in Genesis seems to picture him as anything but righteous. I mean, when the Sodomites want to rape these two angelic guests of Lot, what does Lot do? Here, take my virgin daughters. Does that sound righteous to anyone? When it's time to leave Sodom, he does so reluctantly to the point that the angels have to grab him by the hand and lead him to leave Sodom. He later allows his two daughters to get him drunk so that they can commit incest with him in order to get pregnant by him. Let me ask you, does that fit the biblical picture of a righteous man? Do you hear this and, and think, this man is righteous, really? And if I'm honest, I can't, I can't resolve this. But there are some things that can help resolve it. First, we must assume that like Abraham, who believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness in Genesis 15, 6, 6 that Lot also had been declared righteous by God because of his faith. But here in the context of 2 Peter, he's not referring to imputed righteousness on Lot, but a righteous behavior. And in Genesis chapter 18, we have a hint of an answer because Abraham there gets God to agree that if there are 10 righteous people in Sodom, he will not destroy it. Abraham must have known that Lot was righteous enough to not have joined in with the Sodomites and their godless sensual behavior. And even though we can't understand why Lot would offer his daughters to be raped, he did so in an attempt to protect his house guests. Hospitality to strangers was a very important virtue in the culture. Lot risked his own safety to protect his guests, even though it was in a reprehensible way. Additionally, Peter mentions that I, uh, what I would assume was for from uh, divine inspiration from God, that Lot was oppressed and tormented by the ungodly conduct that he saw and heard around him in Sodom. 
And I read that, and I think, man, that should bring conviction to us. Shouldn't it? Are we tormented by the wickedness of our culture? Listen to Ezekiel 9.4. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Are you tormented by the wickedness of the culture in which we live? Do you sigh and groan over the abominations? Or do we just embrace it? Do we enjoy the movies that are filled with immorality, vulgarity, and nudity? Do we laugh at the filthy jokes of a godless culture? If so, then we're not even as righteous as Lot was. Also, Lot obeyed God by not looking back towards Sodom. In contrast to his wife, who decided that she was going to look back and she was turned into a pillar of salt. This leads me to the inferred conclusion that since God will judge the wicked and save the godly, we must stand firm, following God and resisting all false teaching. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14, verse 14, God praises the righteous, the righteousness of, of three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job. If Noah is one of the most righteous men in the Bible, Lot must barely have made it in by the skin of his teeth. Perhaps the reason these two men are put together here in 2 Peter is to show us how we are to stand firm against a godless culture that we are surrounded by. Noah is commendable. Lot stands out as an example of, of the weakest of the saints. But God showed grace to both men and their families. Verses 9 and 10a are the conclusion of verses 4 through 8. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Godly people are not immune to temptations or to the tests of living in an ungodly culture. <clears throat> we need God to rescue us. God knows how to do it. Listen, if God has saved you from sin by his grace, then God will preserve you unto heaven by his grace. So Peter is encouraging us to have courage. Have courage like Noah, who did it well. Have courage even like Lot, who barely passed the test. To stand firm against the tide of godlessness that's all around us. He wants us to resist all teaching that downplays holy living. And as we do so, even if we suffer for it, we can have the joy of looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ as our eternal reward in him. Let me close with this. Several years ago, I was, I was uh, with a group in Philadelphia, and, and it's when I used to live in Pennsylvania, and we were doing some street witnessing, which I, I used to do quite a bit when I lived in Pennsylvania. I'd go out on the, on the street and share the gospel with people. We'd, we'd walk around uh, on the street 
We try to have conversations with people, and then we try to steer those conversations towards the gospel. And when we're getting ready to go out, one of the trainers that was there said, said this to us. Do not bring up hell or talk about hell. <laughs> Honestly, I found that kind of odd. And I was a youth pastor at the time. I had some teenagers with me. And so I, I remember I was talking to the teens about this. Like, yeah, that's weird. Don't worry about that. God does indeed provide forgiveness of sins and eternal life for everyone who believes in Jesus. But let's be clear. The Bible abundantly warns us that those who do not believe in Jesus will perish in hell forever. Forever. Jesus did not come and die on a cross to give us a warm, fuzzy feeling about God's love. Jesus offered himself to pay the penalty for sin that you and I deserve. To deliver us from the wrath that is to come. He had to pay the price for my salvation because I could not pay it. And he died to save me from an eternal hell. Don't you cheapen the death of Jesus Christ by pretending like hell is not real and that there's not a judgment coming. The angels who sinned, the world under the flood, and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah are there to warn us that God will surely judge everyone who has sinned against him. The deliverance of Noah and Lot give us hope that if we would trust in Jesus Christ, turn from our sins, God in his great mercy will spare us from the judgment to come. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will not perish but have eternal life. And you may say, well, how do I do that? You can do that by praying something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son, that you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I have sinned. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. And I thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. It's not magic. It's your trust in Christ that saves you. And if he called you, that prayer is simply your expression of trusting him. And if you said that prayer or something like it, or you want to know more about that, I'd love to follow up with you. Then come forward at the end of the service. If you're online, you can text the word FAITH to 309 328 3488 from a smartphone. You can even do that if you'd like to do that. If you already know Christ, then I plead with you this morning. Stand firm and resist false teaching. Stand firm in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. And when everyone else wants to do what is right in their own eyes, you, Christian, you, 
stand firm on God's word. You don't back down, you don't give up, and you don't give in. When I get to heaven, I don't want to arrive to heaven in pristine condition. Where, where I just look like I've just been, like I've just, everything's great about me. That's not how I want to get there. I want to get there bloodied and beaten and torn up and tattered because when I went through this world, I didn't do it their way. I stood firm on the word of God. That's the way to get to heaven. No matter what, you stand firm against what the world has to offer. God be glorified in you. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. It is faithful and true. God, it's so convicting. Forgive us, Lord. We have pretended like everything is okay. Pretended like everybody's going to heaven. We walk by family members, we walk by friends, we walk by co workers. We never bring up Jesus. We don't bring up that there is a judgment to come. That hell is forever. Forgive us. For proclaiming that we are followers of you. And yet our mouths are silent. Bring conviction to our lives. May our church grow because we are sharing the gospel with a lost and dying world. And Father, I pray that if there are those that listen to this message and for the first time something about the gospel of Jesus Christ clicked, I pray today would be the day of salvation for them. And Lord, for those of us who already know Christ, oh God, that you would indeed bring conviction into our lives and that we would walk through this world filled with all of its sinfulness and filled with everything that is God-hating and that we would live lives that are God-fearing and that we would stand on the word of God and that we would indeed get to heaven bloody and beaten and tattered and torn up by this world because we stood firm on the word of God and we would not back down or give in. Oh God, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, may they have to leap over our body to go to hell. Convict us. If we need to respond, I pray that we respond this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing, you be willing to come this morning.